everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, and the host of this big conversation we've been having about pregnancy, prenatal care, parenthood, motherhood, feminism, and healthcare. I want to start out today by saying a great big thank you to all of you listening in, sending your questions, sharing this with your friends, making your donations over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com, because there is so much to talk about, right? Anyway, here we are at the tail end of July, which is my favorite month of the year, and I've got to tell you, I am grieving a little bit. I was born in July, the youngest of eight kids in sunny Southern California, and you can bet that a, you know your birthday when in a family of that many kids is about the only day of the year where you get all the attention. Um, so July is my favorite, favorite, favorite. Plus, you guys know how often I complain about the weather where I live now, Portland, Oregon, and all our gray, dark drizzle and rain, rain, rain. Well, not in July. It's sunny and warm, and there are a million things to do, and I love it. July is my month. And this year, I'm treating myself to not one, but two music festivals this month as my summer vacation. I attended the California World Music Fest a couple weekends back and had such a good time. The music was great. The food was great. The company was great. Heck, even the camping was great, and there were thousands of us packed onto a fairgrounds campground. It was a totally fun weekend. So this weekend, I'll be going to the Red Ants Pants Music Festival in Montana, and I'll let you know how that went next week. But if any of you listeners are going to be at the festival, tweet me. We'll find each other. Let's see. So this week, I want to answer some of the questions that you've been sending in from all over the world mostly about pregnancy and birth stuff. And what I want you guys to know most of all is this. Everybody has the same questions. Whether you're writing about spotting or blood pressure or cramps or some other complication, what you really wanna know is, is this normal? Am I and my baby gonna be okay? I know that you're looking for reassurance as much as information, and I hope that today we can give you some of each. Last month on our June 11th episode titled Talk and shop with hospital midwife. I spoke with Chris Beard, a certified nurse midwife who works in the Kaiser Healthcare System, where she delivers babies all day and all night long. She's also the mom of two daughters, an avid camper, and an old friend. Plus, she is great with the Q's and A's, so let's call her up. Hey, Chris. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We were texting back and forth a little bit today that you're on your way back from Seattle. What were you doing? Yep, you there for... I was dropping my... I was going to ask you, business pleasure or kid-related? <laughs> kid-related. Yeah. I was dropping my kids off at camp. Oh, up around Seattle, huh? Yeah, they go to camp um, in the San Juan Islands, so uh, the... The journey starts uh, leaving Portland, driving to the camp bus. Then they take the bus to the boat. Then they go to the island. Oh, my God. Don't you just wish it was you? Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've got your... My kids are having my fantasy childhood. Sorry. Mm. Exactly. And why aren't we having this? Why? Why is that? 
that working thing? I don't know. Yeah. That working thing kind of gets in the way of having a fantasy adulthood. I'm doing pretty well this summer, though. Two weeks ago, I was in uh, California at the California World Music Festival, which was just one million percent fun. And tomorrow, I'm going to hop in the car and take myself to Montana to go to the Red Ants Pants Music Festival. So I am giving myself an excellent summer vacation. Anyway. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So you and I talked the last time uh, back in June, and that has turned out to be um, one of the most frequently downloaded episodes um, of all the episodes I've recorded. And I think it's because listeners really want to know more about what midwives do, how they function. You know, I, I had, I did have one um, really short email and I don't know what country it came from, but I suspect it was U.S. And the question was, are midwives legit? <laughs> Which, yeah. The answer, the short answer is yes, they are. But I think that people are starting to be more and more curious about what midwives do, what you contribute to the maternal health care picture, and what do they need to know about that. I also think that people are starting to gain a little understanding that midwives have a different perspective on maternal health care sometimes than obstetricians do. And so I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised it's been a ridiculously popular podcast. Not to mention the fact that you're engaging and delightful. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I always like to talk about midwifery because midwifery truly is my life calling Mm -hmm. and my my true passion. Mm -hmm. And I consider it an honor and a privilege to be present when a new family is born because that's what happens when the baby emerges, however it emerges, is, it, is that a duo becomes a trio and a trio can become more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it's, I feel like it's a very um, special thing. And I, I have been doing it for 25 years and I still enjoy my work and feel honored every day to be present with women when they're going through this process. I just learned something. So I'm always happy to talk about midwifery. I just learned something. I don't know if it's actually 100% true, but I read something somewhere that said that midwife means with woman. Obstetrician means to stand in front of a woman. I think that those are both true. Uh And midwife comes from the German with woman. And Uh there are actually men midwives, which is usually the second question. Um, and I did read in, I don't remember some historical treatise that obstetrician does mean to stand in front of. I think you're correct. Yeah. Which is kind of the difference between the two models of maternal health care, where midwives are there to help women to be with them while they're doing what their bodies do. And obstetricians are there to protect and defend against abnormalities. Do you think? I do. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the way I look at it is that midwives are the experts at normal birth. Mm -hmm. We are the safekeepers and the experts at normal birth. And that's Mm -hmm. our job is to protect normal birth. Right. And And I think sometimes we, 
you know, sometimes it is difficult to do that in our current world. Oh, man. To protect the normal. Oh, baby. You are preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. It is so difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. So let me ask you some work questions then. When was Sure. When was the last time you worked a shift? Uh, Thursday. Okay. Um, how many shifts do you work in a week? Um, I am a part-time person, so I work two to three shifts a week, sometimes in the clinic and sometimes in the hospital. Um, that's the model of, of, of care that our practice has. Got it. So how many babies would you say that you see born in a month? Well, I would say for... I, I still keep a logbook after 25 years. Oh, good. So and do you know the how many? Ju- well, I'd have to add them all together, but I think I'm in the 3,500 range at this point because wow. I do a few more than 100 births a year in an average year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the month of June was a banner month for me, and I was present and involved in the birth of 20 babies. Woo! So... In a sh- depending on what kind of how busy the shift is, I can be involved in the birth of anywhere between one and five babies. So, what's the most number of babies you've delivered in a shift? Seven. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. How often do you have to work nights these days? I work, uh, half of my shifts are night shifts, half of my hospital shifts are night shifts. So the natural reaction people have about night shift is, oh, poor you, you must hate it. And there were certainly parts of it that I hated, like the chronic sleep deprivation. But I actually really liked working nights because there was more autonomy, it was quieter, there was less, um, you know, just fewer people coming through the unit and we didn't have all of the scheduled procedures you know people that were there at night were either usually in labor recently delivered or had something going on like they needed a labor check um whereas in the daytime you've got all kinds of stuff happening i think that our unit is busy enough that the nights and days are not that different huh and I would say that um, holidays are a different thing because people don't come in on the holiday unless it's the real deal. Mm-hmm. So holidays are kind of what I think of the night shift used to be, mm-hmm. um, where it was a little more quiet. But but really, our unit is busy 24-7. Hmm. We don't have the scheduled procedures at night, but mm-hmm. we also have um, a large population of high-risk pregnancies mm-hmm. and, and Things can go. Things can start happening with them at any any time. So it's always pretty busy. I think that for me, the night shift. Um, you know, I'm in my 50s. I've been doing this for 25 years, and the night shift is is tough. Mm-hmm. It's definitely tough. Mm-hmm. And let's just put it this way: I'm not signing up for any extra nights if I can help it. Yeah, I don't blame you. I'll 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 do my share, but um, I don't really want to do more than my share. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, you know, we think back to some of the nurses that we worked with back when you and I were at the same hospital, and some of those women did, you know, 20 and 30 years of night shift. And you know what? They did okay. 
they had a system in place where they were able to sleep well during the day and you know I, I did well, it I think that is yeah that is one of the beauties of of um of of having a role where you don't have to switch back and forth to between night and day yeah. but because I do full scope midwifery and I see patients in the clinic you know I can't really have, have a clinic at night so um um, that just kind of precludes being able to really set that up for myself. But I admire people who can do that, work thank, only nights, thank God and for survive that. all those years. Yeah, thank God for the nurses who prefer the night shift. Isn't that true? Oh, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> and thank God for the ones who like to work Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I just thank you. That's all I want to say. Thank you for that. Well, let's see. What I want to do today, Chris, is I want to, I have been getting a lot, a lot of listener questions. And usually they're very, very brief. You know, one, one short, you know, little line. Um, sometimes people tell me where they come from. Sometimes they include their name and sometimes they don't. But it kind of indicates to me that a couple of things. Um, depending on where women live in the world, um, they may or may not be getting enough information to sort of settle their questions. That's one thing. And you know, we know that in many parts of the world, prenatal care is rare or unusual or at best very, very brief and cursory. And it's not really the place where you can sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with your midwife or obstetrician and get all your questions answered. And in some parts of the world, including parts of the United States, you know, if something happens during your pregnancy, something major or minor or annoying, um, there isn't, you know, a big city, there isn't anybody right there that they can talk to. I mean, maybe their doctor is a two-hour drive away, or maybe they hit the phone tree when they're calling the big city medical center and they can't get to anybody that can actually answer them. But more often what it is, is I think that a lot of women still feel a little embarrassed about answering certain questions about, you know, their most intimate healthcare issues because we have a lot of taboos around it, but also because they think they should already know it. You know what I mean? That's probably true. Yeah. That they think they should already know it. Yeah. And yet, I mean, seriously, most women don't spend that much time in their life pregnant and so you don't have the opportunity to come across all of the little quirks and bubbles that can go on in a normal pregnancy or an abnormal pregnancy. So, you know, you learn as you go, you ask as you get them, and hopefully you have the resources to be able to get the info you need. So with that, you ready to answer a few listener questions? Sure. I'll take a, I'll take a crack at it. Cool, cool. The things people email me about most often are spotting, cramping, and late pregnancy curveballs, like finding out that they have low amniotic fluid, or last-minute induction or C-section recommendations, or other kinds of situations that they didn't see coming. Um, so I've got, oh, quite a few here. Um, this one is incredibly common. Um, I get this question all the time. Hey, Miss Jean, I have sex last night, and then I see blood on my underwear. I have seven weeks pregnant. Am I miscarry? Jacqueline. 
um, I suspect Jacqueline is not a U.S. speaker, American speaker. So we get this all the time, early in pregnancy, um, and they have sex, and then they have a little bit of spotting. What do you want to say about that? Well, spotting in pregnancy is fairly common, but I wouldn't say that it's normal, Mm -hmm. which might sound like I'm talking out of two sides of my Mm -hmm. mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, Most most likely the spotting after intercourse is related to the blood vessels on the surface of the cervix, which can be very um, sensitive, and when they're touched, they bleed. Mm -hmm. Um, So the spotting is is most likely not coming from the pregnancy, but coming from the cervix. However, the only way to figure that out is to have somebody look inside your vagina with a speculum. Mm -hmm. So in my practice, because we have the capability of doing that, if you call or send an email and say that you're spotting, we bring you in for an appointment. If you didn't have access to your care provider and you had spotting, it's hard to know when you should be seen if you if if being seen is difficult mm-hmm. and i would say that if you have cramping like menstrual cramps and spotting together you should always seek care um and like i said we we see people for spotting whenever they call yeah but and it's but you're... it's most likely sorry go ahead so it's most likely not a miscarriage but we have to see you to know that <clears throat> and you know, even if, if it is that early, seven weeks, and, you know, I agree with you, it sounds exactly like the cervix got bumped and leaked a little blood, and it's actually no big deal. Um, but let's say she was having a miscarriage. There isn't a lot you can do about it at that point. So, you know, a trip to your midwife or obstetrician is there to confirm whether it's happening or not to provide you with information and reassurance and to determine whether or not, I mean, if it, you are having a miscarriage, to determine whether or not you need follow-up medical care. Am I right? Correct. Yeah. And I think miscarriage is much more common <laughs> than people know. About mm-hmm. one-third of early pregnancies end in miscarriage. And so what people find out when they have a pregnancy loss is that they start talking about it and they realize their Aunt Martha had a pregnancy loss and their next door neighbor had a pregnancy loss, but people just don't really talk about it. Yeah. But about one third of pregnancies end in miscarriage in the first trimester. I wish that people talked about it more. You know, I wish that it was not still this taboo subject like, you know, oh, you you lost the baby. Like you put it down somewhere, mm-hmm. you know? No, you didn't. It happened. It was something that happened, but it it isn't a failure that a mother has. Yet we still think of it that way. Many, many women do. I think people people wonder and worry, was it something I did? Was it something I ate? Was it something I drank? And <clears throat> although it may not be very reassuring, I just tell people it's bad luck. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not anything that you did and you are not responsible for this. But I think women, as women, we do feel responsible and um, I'm not really sure how that, that conversation changes except for to have more conversation. Exactly. That's how it changes. I have a, a, a friend who, um, you know, is doing her part to sort of change the conversation and bring it up m- more by she created a line of greeting cards t- um, that is specific to miscarriage and stillbirth. 
And that's, you know, that just, it's an opportunity for people to acknowledge, to be able to say, yeah, me too, and to provide support. And I think that we're seeing, you know, we have stillbirth, stillbirth awareness day or month. It's happening. People are talking about it. It's just a slow moving platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you mentioned, um, you mentioned cramping. So actually we have another question. This is from another listener who said, last time I had sex, I had cramps after I'm five months pregnant. Am I going to miscarry if I have sex again? My boyfriend wants to know. <laughs> her boyfriend wants to know, Chris. <laughs> Let's okay, reassure her boyfriend. Well, <laughs> I can reassure her boyfriend. So um, having intercourse provides an opportunity for sperm to come into contact with the vagina and the cervix. Sperm has prostaglandins in it, <laughs> glandins in it which can cause contractions, which feels like cramping. Mm-hmm. Um the other interesting thing is when you have an orgasm, you have cramps. Yeah. You have contractions of your uterus. Mm-hmm. So those combination of sperm and orgasm can have you have the feeling of cramping after intercourse. And we only worry about it if it persists for many hours. Right. Um, and, you know, there are people who have uteruses that are very sensitive to many things and have a lot of contractions. Mm-hmm. And that can be one of the most frustrating things to try to figure out is, are these contractions I should worry about or should I not worry about these? Right. And so, you know, my guideline for people is if you're having more than four contractions in an hour for more than two hours, we want you to call us. And what that really means is that the person will be able to talk to a nurse and kind of tease out what it, what is really going on. And sometimes they're invited in for an assessment and sometimes they're encouraged to stay home and monitor at home for a little bit longer. But having contractions or cramps after intercourse usually fades over the course of a couple of hours. I like if it, it ramped up, then, then I would, then I would that's want more you concerning. to be I like how you said yeah. the nurse will tease out because so often it is like that. For, you know, nurses and midwives and doctors, asking the blunt question, well, did you have sex? Is like asking what day of the week it is. It's nothing. It's so common to us. But you know, most people don't get asked that question every day. So we do try to use a little bit of tact there, but that's how common it is that we get that question. We get that phone call. Um, We probably get a phone call like that every day. At least. Or multiple, or multiple calls like that. Yeah. I remember getting phone calls in the middle of the night, you know, maybe two o'clock in the morning. And you know that they had sex a few hours ago their boyfriend or husband is asleep in the bed next to them and the woman is awake cramping and worried and you know i'm just my heart goes out to them because i know how scary that can feel and i'm always really grateful that they just call and ask hey i had sex a few hours ago i'm cramping should i worry and almost always we give them the same advice you did and say yeah not so much you probably don't have to worry um, well, the other thing I like to tell patients is I don't want you to worry by yourself. Right. If you're concerned about something, give us a call. Here's the number. We'll worry together. We'll talk Correct. you through it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we're here for. That's what we do. That's what we do. 
And and I've got to say, giving a shout out to all the midwives that I've worked with, you're going to have more time together with your midwife than you are with your obstetrician. Though I know countless obstetricians who will happily hang out with you on the phone call while you're worried in the middle of the night too. Um, another miscarriage question. Dear Jeannie, I have had one miscarriage and one normal pregnancy. I recently found out I'm pregnant again and I'm terrified of having another miscarriage. What can I do to make sure it doesn't happen? Monica. Oh, Monica. Oh, Monica, I wish there was something sweetie. you could do. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I think that is a really, really common fear. Yeah. And it is it is very scary to be pregnant after a miscarriage because mm-hmm. you are so worried. Mm-hmm. And if if there was something you could do, we would tell you. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, as I said earlier, I think miscarriage is just bad luck. Yeah. And there isn't anything you can do. And I think most people that I've taken care of, once they pass that place in the pregnancy where the miscarriage happened previously, like someone who had a miscarriage at eight weeks, once they get to nine weeks, they can kind of relax a little bit. Mm -hmm. But some people are very anxious until they have a baby in their arms. Yeah. And that's a little harder. That's a little harder to help people manage. Especially if they've had a late term loss. That's devastating. And everybody's nervous then. It's true. And, you know, I don't know if you know this or I don't know if you remember this, but my sister had a baby that died of SIDS. Mm. when I was in midwifery school. Mm, I and don't so, think I knew that. Um, yeah, so I have a, I have a deeply personal um, experience and interest with infant loss. And um, I can tell you that taking care of patients who have had a late-term loss or a SIDS death or even the death of a young child from, other, from accident or cancer or other things is a very, um, it's a, very vulnerable time for women, more vulnerable than the average woman. And it requires a lot of TLC and talking and acknowledging the pregnancy that was lost or the baby that was lost. And, you know, some people call those successful pregnancies after a loss or after a SIDS baby rainbow babies. Hmm. And I think there's, there's more talking about that now, but it is, it's very, very difficult. And, um, you know, there isn't, there isn't a right thing to say, but I will tell you that for my family, um, people acknowledging my sister's daughter and asking how you're doing and calling her out by name was mm-hmm. very helpful. Yeah. Um, and that I think people are afraid to ask how you're doing because they don't want to remind you that your baby died. As but if the you weren't already is, thinking about it. Correct. Yeah. The truth is people are thinking about it anyway. It's like any, it's like the death of anyone that you love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to have that acknowledgement from people that your child was important, whether your child was an infant or never breathed, I think is important for people as they move through the healing process. Yeah. And the process can take a very long time for people. So, um, you know, that's, that's the that's the hard part of my job is that there are people who don't have successful pregnancies. I hate that language, but people who have pregnancies that don't go home with babies in their arms. Right. And it's, it's, that's the hard part. I, I love that you tell people to say the baby's name 
if the child was named. In some cultures, they don't name the baby. But um, whether they're named or not, bringing them up into the conversation is a way of keeping their memory alive. And, uh, you know, you're right. People are thinking about it anyways. Say their name. Just say their name. So Say their name and acknowledge their life, however brief. Yeah. And, Monica, if you're listening to this, um, probably you're not going to have another miscarriage. The odds are in your favor that everything is going to work out okay. And if you can find any way to hang on to those odds, um, it's going to do you more good than worrying about the chances that you will miscarry. Um, if only to, you know, give you a little silver lining. The chances are very good that you will not have another miscarriage. Um, let's do another one. Uh, let's see. Okay, this one is interesting to me because, you know, I don't know where this listener emailed me from, but it's clearly an area where they're not necessarily following standards of care. The question is this. My doctor told me I have to have a C-section because my baby is too big. He did an ultrasound and said my baby is almost nine pounds. My first baby was eight and a half and I had him normal, normally. So why can't I have a nine pounder normally? He says I have to. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, having a big baby is a common thing among some People. I mean, yeah. some people grow big babies, eight pounders, nine pounders, 10 pounders. And, you know, everyone is afraid of a big baby. The truth is we have no good ways to estimate how, how big a baby really is. We are notoriously inaccurate when we feel the belly using something called Leopold's maneuvers. Mm-hmm. And ultrasound is notoriously inaccurate. Ultrasound can be a pound off either direction. Yeah. So they can tell you you're having an eight pound baby and you have a seven pound baby or you have a nine pound baby. Right. And I was always taught by my um, my obstetrician mentor, who was a wonderful OB who took me under his wing when I was a new graduate midwife and really nurtured me. And he was fond of saying, well, if the baby comes out, it fits. If it doesn't come out, it wasn't going to fit. Right. And so he was he was kind of a hands off guy where everybody got a chance to have a vaginal birth. Mm-hmm. And we never did an induction or a C-section or um, intervened in any way for suspected macrosomia, which is the fancy medical term for big baby. And in fact, it's no longer so, considered a valid indication to schedule an induction or do a C-section. It's that's ACOG standards say that. Correct. Yeah. And. The, the piece of the piece of the puzzle that is very dynamic is that the pelvis, the shape of the pelvis changes during late pregnancy and during labor. And so we women were I mean, our bodies were designed or um, evolved to do this, to give birth. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think there's a design flaw. I think that there is, you know, sometimes yes, babies don't fit. Babies are too big and they don't fit, but they tell us that all along the way. And 
I wouldn't, um, you know, if I think it's hard for women when they have a relationship with someone that they've developed over time to go against what they're being told by this person that they trust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's never, it's never a problem, at least in our setting and in our city to get a second opinion. Um, for a lot of women, though, so, they don't have a relationship with their care provider. You know, they're in maybe a clinic situation or maybe they're in a, you know, county health facility situation or, you know, some other kind of model of care where you go for your appointment and you see whoever you get. I mean, that's really common. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then there's also you know, the authority dynamic, whether you know your, your physician right. or not, he's the doctor, you're the patient. And then there's the gen- the gender dynamic, you know, that plays a role in some maternal health relationships. He's the guy who Absolutely. tells you what to do. So, you know, in this particular question, I see so many problems. My doctor told me I have to have a C-section. Well, no, you have the right to refuse. Because my baby is too big. Well, you already addressed that. You can't really tell how big that baby is. He did an ultrasound and said my baby is almost nine pounds. As you mentioned, they can be off by a full pound. My first baby was almost eight and a half and I had him normal. Well, she's got a proven pelvis. So why can't Absolutely. I have a nine pounder normal? Um, you, you can, probably. He you says, probably can. Yeah. He says, I have to. No, you don't. What you do have well, that's to do a... is you yeah. have to have a conversation. You have to say, I've had a big baby. ACOG standards don't indicate that this is a reason to have a C-section. I don't want to have a C-section. If I go into labor and I can't have the baby the way that I, you know, did with my first child a vaginal delivery so be it we can do a c-section then but it's not an indication to sign up for a scheduled c-section it isn't it absolutely isn't yeah so she didn't sign her name i don't know what this reader's or this listener's name is but if you're listening you can take them this podcast and say you know what we know what the standards say and that isn't that isn't right um, and then you have to go with whatever, you, you know, a lot, a lot of women in the world actually don't have a whole lot of choice. They're, you know, they have to go with the health care that they're provided. So she might be, she might have a little bit of a battle in front of her. I hope she doesn't. Um, you up to a couple more questions? Well. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can I just interject? Yeah. What I would tell her, stay home as long as you can when you're in labor. Yeah. If you come to the hospital and you're nine centimeters, you just have a baby. That's right. Nobody messes with you. And, um, you know, you do what your body's meant to do. Right. It's ridiculous that women have to play games like this in order to just do what their body has to do. It's ridiculous. It's so true. Yeah. It is. It's really disheartening. And, you know, we're fortunate that we live in a part of the country where things are fairly enlightened. But we hear these stories. Right. You know, you hear these stories all the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I've got two other questions here that are actually, they're um, kind of polar opposites of each other. 
<laughs> this one is funny. I don't know that I have had this question before. I want to have an epidural as soon as I go into labor. I don't want to feel contractions. What should I do? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, oh, well, well, that's a that's a hard one. Yeah, here's the um, here's the the smack dab truth about it is that isn't going to happen. Um, you're going to have to feel some contractions because, first of all, I mean, I am going to bet you that it, this is this woman's first pregnancy and she hasn't experienced labor yet, and she's probably really afraid of the pain. But epidurals aren't like taking a Tylenol. It's a whole medical procedure that is rather time consuming and requires a lot of medical interventions before you get numb. Um, it also isn't appropriate to have an epidural in the earliest stages of labor because maybe you're not even in active labor yet, but there you are stuck in the hospital with one intervention, which then leads to a next intervention and the next one down the road. So I'm going to give my advice and then you tell me what your advice would be for this listener. My advice is that go ahead and plan on having that epidural um, because chances are very good that you're going to be able to get one at your healthcare facility when you're in active labor. But at the same time, make sure that you have a really good um, you know, bunch of things that you can do that are not epidural related that will help you relax and deal with what your body has to do before you can get that epidural. Like take a hypnobirthing class, learn deep breathing and relaxation techniques, find out about you know whether or not you can soak in a hot bathtub or a birthing pool. Um, you know, all of those things actually do help till you can get to the point where if you need something else, an epidural or some other kind of pain management technique, you can use one. Your turn. Well, that's pretty much my advice. Yeah. Um, I also like to tell people that, you know, uh, unless you've watched either Call the Midwife or William and Mary, mm -hmm. you have had a um, very skewed media portrayal of birth. Mm -hmm. You do not break your water in a taxi cab and arrive at the hospital and have a baby. Almost never. Um, most, <laughs> almost never. Most people, their labor looks nothing like what you see on TV. And so um, your labor may start up like a car on a cold day, you know, kind of puttering and then petering out for a while and puttering and petering out for a while. Or it might start up like a rocket ship and we just don't know which way it's going to start. Mm -hmm. But, you know, actually doing some things at home, distracting yourself, taking a shower, taking a bath, trying to sleep if it's nighttime, um, all of those things during the early part of labor. And then when you're, when you're no longer able to cope with what you're doing at home or managing with, then you go to the hospital. And a lot of times, if you're in active labor, pain management is available for you. But you're right, until you're actually in active labor, it's not really the right time to get pain medicine or yeah. have a pain management um, plan. Yeah. So there are many things that people do. And I, I love hypnobirthing. I also like birthing from within. And um, I'm sure there are other um, ways of coping with uh, labor that that I'm just that are not coming to the tip of my tongue right now. But but I think it's good to have some techniques in your 
backpack for use in that early part of labor when it's not appropriate for you to get an epidural. Right, right. And some healthcare facilities, not very many yet, but an increasing number are offering um, nitrous oxide, laughing gas. So that's another... And... Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. We have that at our facility. Yeah. We have that at our... at Not at my facility. We're getting it in a month, but they have it at our sister hospital, and um, it is a great... Um, tool in the arsenal for people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the other, the next question is just about the the opposite of that. I want to have a natural birth with no medicine, but I have to have it in the hospital. My sister says they'll make me have an epidural. What should I do? <laughs> okay, this addresses a number of things. Um, there's the terminology of natural birth versus unmedicated birth. Um, no medicine at all. That's fine. That's perfectly doable. You have to have it in the hospital. I get that. Most people, I think it's like 94% of the births that happen in the United States happen in the hospital. Maybe it's even higher, like 97%. Um, and if that's what your insurance is going to cover, so be it. Um, your sister says they're going to make you. (laughs) Nobody's going to make you, honey. Nobody's going to make you have an epidural. They might strongly recommend it. They might tell you that it's your best option for a pain-free labor. Um, and I have heard stories in some hospitals that the nurses just downright practically bully you into it. But nobody's going to make you. And again, we're talking about informed consent. We're talking about being prepared for the experience that's ahead of you. But then, you know what? <sighs> I wish people wouldn't say things like that. Oh, when you get to the hospital, they're going to make you. What? What are you doing there? Why are you saying that? What's that about? Yeah. Yeah, that kind of sets us up to be the bad guys, doesn't it? Oh, my God. How many people? I hear from a lot of people who are terrified that their hospital experience is going to be a battle of the wills and that they're going to be manipulated. And unfortunately, it's because sometimes that's true. It isn't always. And again, we live in Portland. We're not in the deep south that has some of the worst maternal health outcomes in the country. Um, You know, we're not in, you know, a one hospital county where there's, you know, there are no other resources. And we're not driving two hours for a prenatal visit with the only provider that there is in the county. Right, right. So we're... Do they call that a medical desert just like they call it a food desert? I think so. There's no providers. Yeah, I think so. So I think that... You know, we've talked about all of the things that you can do to have an unmedicated birth. And I think every patient, regardless of every mother, regardless of what kind of birth she wants, home or hospital or birth center, water birth, um, unmedicated birth, fully medicated birth, I don't care what kind of birth she has. She needs a full spectrum prenatal education that teaches her, you know, a, a bunch of tips and tricks for dealing with it. Um, because you really don't know what you're going to deal with when you get into the hospital. I've I've had so many women who've come in saying they wanted a natural birth. That's what people usually call it. Um, and then they find out that really they weren't prepared for that. And they end up with an epidural. And that's perfectly fine. And then I've had some women who have known that they wanted an epidural, but then came in and found out that actually things went so much faster and smoother than they thought it was going to go that they didn't really need it. 
mean, that's sort of the exception to the rule, but we've seen it. You've seen it, right? We've seen it. Yeah. And I, I, I have a lot of people who come to me. Um, I think I have the reputation in my group for being supportive of many alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of people who come to me with exactly that scenario. Mm -hmm. I want to have an unmedicated birth. I only, I, my insur I would really rather have a home birth, but I have insurance. So I'm going to have my birth in the hospital. And, you know, some of these are first time moms and some of these are moms who've already previously given birth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I tell people exactly the same thing. The cultural norm is that people get epidurals. Mm -hmm. I think probably most hospitals in our city have epidural rates of upwards of 75%. I could mm -hmm. be wrong. No, that's but not right. I'm, I'm, sus I'm suspecting that's kind of our current rate. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you want an unmedicated birth, you're going to have to work for it because it's not the norm. So it's like planning for peace but preparing for war. You need to have all those tools in your, in your basket so that if you have a labor that unfolds very differently than what you would hope for, that you have some coping skills and also that you're flexible and open enough to realize, hey, I could have nitrous oxide or I can have an epidural and that's going to be okay because that's what I need for this journey. Yeah. You know, you can't predict what your birth is going to be like. And, you know, the perfect example is somebody who wants an unmedicated birth but their water breaks and they're not in labor and labor is not happening on its own. And, you know, the current ACOG recommendation is that you get augmented with Pitocin. Yeah. And so it, that's a more difficult path to walk without pain management. Yeah. Pit hurts. And so for people, pit hurts. Yeah. Pit and hurts. for people who, for people who end up with that scenario, which you wouldn't wish on them for anything, they may have to make some adjustments in their plan. Yeah. Um, so I like people to know what they want, but have some flexibility built in there in case the path differs from what they want. Which is excellent um, advice for all avenues of parenting. Know what you want. Absolutely. But be flexible. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. So true. Learn it well. Be, while you're pregnant, carry it through until for as long as you know your children. <laughs> you know, because your own little um, ideas about who they are and what they're going to be like and how you're going to do things will go probably right out the window. Yeah. Shortly after they're born or they come to you because, you know, this fantasy that you had about this little person that's inside of you, it's a, a person. Yeah. When they come out, they are just who they are. Yeah. And they may not be who you thought they were. Almost never are. As far as I can tell so far, having had several of them myself, they're never the person you think they are, and they are always the person they actually are, even if it's and, not who you planned on them being. <laughs> and, you, you know, if you, can, if you can roll with that and be flexible about that, it is an awesome thing to watch them unfold yeah it to really be who is. they are it really is yeah yeah well Chris we answered a bunch of them we answered a bunch and so listeners um I love doing this every now and again we'll hop on the phone and um we will try to answer all of these questions kind of rapid fire like this it brings up a lot of information that so many people want to know you know they're everybody's thinking about this so this is great thank you 
Appreciate Thanks it. for calling me. It was great fun. Yeah, you going to come back and talk to us again sometime? I would love to. Okay, cool. Anytime. Okay, cool. All right, Chris. Thank you very much for hopping on the phone. You're you're very welcome, Jeannie. Thanks for thinking of me. Okay, cool. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Today's guest was certified nurse midwife Chris Beard. You can email any questions you might have for Chris to me over at jean at jeanfaulkner.com and I'll get them to her. Check out my website, jeanfaulkner.com, to learn more about me and my work. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner and please, oh please, go buy the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, will ya? It's everywhere books are sold. Seriously, most of your questions are probably answered in there in a lot more detail than I answer them here. Common Sense Pregnancy is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks for listening and sharing and donating and subscribing and for keeping this conversation going. Talk to you later. Like this, my mama said.